0: Well, amen. It's Christmas season. Hope some of you are excited. Not crazy stressed. Some of you, uh, maybe I caught the guys out earlier on their phones, I said, are you waiting to see who makes the college football playoff? So maybe that's what some of you are focused on. I know some teams that won't be, but we won't go there. I'm totally kidding. Uh, Hey, church family, it is uh, December, and what we are actually looking at this morning, uh, mentioned, mentioned it last week, this is around the Southern Baptist Convention this week, this is the beginning of the Lottie Moon Week of Prayer. Uh, in December, it is tradition in the convention to give a Christmas offering towards our 3,500-plus missionaries uh, who serve full-time overseas and uh, to give towards that. And this week begins a week where churches throughout our convention are being called to spend the week in prayer for those missionaries and for what's going on. And, and because of that, and it, and it fits right in line with Christmas, we, we looked at last week John chapter 3, and we, we all know John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave, that he sent, his one and only unique son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. This is ultimately the story of Christmas. This is the message of the gospel. This is the mission of God. And so in light of that, we're going to spend some time in a different text this morning. If last week we asked the question, what is our hope in this season? Then this week we're we're really answering the question in, in light of our hope, what is our message? What is our witness. And so I invite you, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1. And we're going to pick up now, as you come to Acts, listen to what it says, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The writer, uh, the physician Luke, the gospel writer's writing, and he says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach Until the day he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, here's what you find out right off the bat as we come to the book of Acts. Acts is the second account. This is the second account from what? Well, the Gospel of Luke. Luke begins the Gospel of Luke by writing to the great Theophilus, and he tells him that in the Gospel of Luke, he's tried to construct an, an accurate and an orderly account of the life and times of Christ. And mentioning that, he says, the first account that I wrote, Theophilus, and notice what he says about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Well, that phrasing implies something. Theophilus, I, I wrote you the first volume about all that Jesus began to do and teach until this point. The implication is now I'm writing you the second volume about all that Jesus is continuing to do because he's not done. So it says, I write all he's continuing to do and. Here's what he says, talking about the apostles whom uh, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, had given charge to. He he says this, to these, Jesus also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, if, if you'll remember, in the story of in, in, in the life of Christ, you have Jesus. He's got the, you got the Passion Week that culminates in Jesus dying on the cross on Good Friday. He, he's in accordance with, with Jewish calendar. He's buried and in, in the ground three days. Sunday morning, He rises from the grave, risen, resurrected. And what we know is from that point of resurrection until what we look at today, there is a 40-day window a 40-day window where Jesus is appearing off and on, and not appearing as if he's some kind of a hologram, but there in, in, in the real physical newness of, of his resurrected flesh, he is appearing in the midst of the disciples. We see various moments of this. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene in the Garden First. We see in Luke that he appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. In John twenty, he makes two different appearances to the uh, the eleven disciples, the twelve minus Judas. One without Thomas, one with Thomas. We know in John twenty one that he appears on the sea, the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, eats breakfast. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter uh, chapter uh, thirteen. Now, not only this, but He appears to the disciples. He appears to over 500 followers at one time. He appears even to His own family. And in all of these appearances, He's doing two things. Luke mentions, He offers convincing proofs. He is demonstrating that He is actually, there is no question, there's no shadow of doubt, Jesus is appearing to show to His followers, I am in fact risen. I'm not not a hallucination, that's one of the alternative theories for the resurrected Christ by skeptics, except the problem is 500 people can't hallucinate the same thing at the same time. So he offers these convincing proofs, but he's also doing something else besides offering these convincing beyond shadow of a doubt proofs to these eyewitnesses. He's also finishing the last little bit of equipping and training and teaching on his kingdom before He will ascend and continue His work through His people, His church. And this is what we come to. It says, He gathered the disciples together and He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for what the Father had promised, quote, which you heard of from Me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He's he's there with his disciples. He's he's eating a meal with them is is the context of that word, gathering them together. He's spending time with them, and he says, here's the deal. You are not to leave Jerusalem now that we're all back. This is towards the end of the 40 days. We're all back here in Jerusalem. You're not to leave Jerusalem until this moment. And he reminds them of what he shared with them in in the Gospel of John, chapters 14 and chapter 16, where he talks about it's better for you that I go. It's better for you that instead of me being here in, in the flesh with you, it's better for you that I go, that I ascend in glory to the right hand of the Father, so that I may send the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity, not an it, not a power, God Himself, the Holy Spirit, that I may send the Holy Spirit. And He, he tells them the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness. The Holy Spirit's going to remind you of the things I've taught you. The Holy Spirit is going to lead you in truth. The Holy Spirit is going to empower you. He says you are to wait here in Jerusalem until what the Father has promised, which I told you about, the Holy Spirit comes, and it says, and and He gives the reference, John baptized or immersed you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, what do we mean by baptized there? Let's all remember, our English word baptized is a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo, And baptizo, while we think of baptized in English, we think of baptized, we put somebody in the water, we dunk them under. Well, why do we dunk somebody fully underwater? Because the verb just means to immerse completely and fully, to cover every last ounce of. So when he says here the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what he is describing is what happens for us at the moment of salvation, when you and I come to that point where we confess that we are sinners and, in accordance with the Holy Spirit who's been, in His kindness, convicting our heart that we're sinners, alienated from God, when we confess our sin, when we acknowledge that Jesus is who He says He is, He's done what He's said He's done, and that, and that we need Him to save us, when that moment of salvation comes, the Holy Spirit comes as the Holy Spirit indwells us, the Holy Spirit of God physically in, in, or enters, our, enters our being. It says He seals us, meaning He can't leave. That seal is permanent. Not only that, but, but the way it's described is he ba- we are baptized in the Spirit. We are completely and totally immersed once for all by the Holy Spirit. He says, so you're going to wait. So that you're going to wait for this. These are the first followers, so the Spirit hadn't come at this point. He says, you're going to wait. So a little time goes, verse 6. When they had come together, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord... Is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, it's possible when they ask that question, it's possible that we're right in going, man, even now, 40 days after Jesus has resurrected from the grave, his disciples still don't get it. Because they say, is, "Is this is this the time when you're going to come? When you're going to bring your kingdom? When you're going to free Israel from the oppression of Rome? Is this is this the second coming?" Is essentially maybe if we were to ask it in our words, and it's possible that they they really weren't understanding that they weren't getting it. That there there was this one final question of theirs that needed to be answered. At the same time, it's also possible they were they were asking a very legitimate question because. The book of Joel prophesies that there's going to come a point where God's going to send His Holy Spirit upon their sons and daughters, and and that the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell believers is a sign of the Lord's return. And so it's possible that they've got got a legitimate question here, regardless of whether it's legitimate or whether they're, they're still not getting it. They're focused on the wrong thing. And look at what Jesus says to them. He says to them... It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So here's what he says. He says, listen, great question, but it's none of your business. It's a great question, but it's none of your business. It is not for you, it is not your place. He's talking to his followers. My disciples, it's not for you to know what the movements of history are gonna be. The times and epochs, talking about the, the, the ages, the periods of time, history, what's happening. He says, God is sovereign, God is in control. Paul will say in Acts 17 that the movement of peoples and nations are fixed and appointed by God himself that there is a reality that in history, as, as cheesy as the joke was from some of my history profs, history is His story. He is in control of history. He is over. It doesn't mean God causes everything that happens in history, but it does mean that God is sovereignly overseeing what for you and I unfolds on the pages of history to His appointed and without question glorious end of His return. And He says, it's not for you to know all that. It's not for you to know what the Father's doing, when it's gonna happen, when is this happen, when is this power gonna rise and this power gonna fall. He says, no, this is what's for you. Is that when the Holy Spirit comes, you're gonna receive power. Now that word power is, is a word dunamis, and it, it's a word that describes something having the actual ability to do what it's supposed to do. It speaks of strength and might it's a word, a root word, dynamite, it's, it's action, it's, it's the potential to do something, the force. Here's simply what it means. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to have every ounce of the power and ability you need to do what I'm calling you to do. You're, you're not going to lack any of it. You're going to have it. And He says, you will receive leaving zero doubt. But he says this power, as the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he also leaves zero alternative options. You will be my witnesses. You will be those who testify to what you see, to what you have heard, to what you know to be true. You are going to be my witnesses. Elsewhere, you'll see the term in 1 Corinthians that we are God's ambassadors. You'll see in Philippians, we are citizens of heaven. Here's what Jesus says, as ambassadors, as citizens of heaven, you are going to be my witnesses, those who are going to testify, who are, to pro- who are going to proclaim the truth of who I am, of what I've done, of what I will do, and the one who trusts me, and what I am coming back to finish. You are my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, the immediate surrounding area, in Judea and Samaria, Judea would be that region, that broader region that that is of Jerusalem, Samaria, that region above it. Let me put it this, maybe this in a different way. Judea is that region of people who who are like you and you agree with. Samaria for the Jews at that time would be that region of people who are still for the most part like you, but you disagree with. And not just there, but to the ends of the earth. It says, you're going to be my witnesses, even to the remotest part. And by the way, did you notice here, it says, you shall be my witnesses both in. Meaning, he takes away the option for one of them to say, okay, well, I'll sign up for that Jerusalem spot. And another one say, I'll sign up for that. He says, no, 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 you don't get an option. It's not either or, it's both, it's both and calling you to be my witnesses. And look what happens after he says this, verse nine. After Jesus said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud, or also termed for glory, he was received up in a cloud of glory out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently looking up in the sky, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched them go into heaven. So here they are. They're up on the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem. Jesus is lifted up. He is concealed in a cloud of glory, and they're all standing there, watching. Maybe they're somewhat amazement. Maybe they're speechless. Maybe they're distracted. Regardless, two angels show up and say, what are you all doing? What are you doing? Jesus who you just saw ascend in glory, He's going to come back in the sky, descending in glory just the same. Why are are you still waiting here? So then look what happens, verse 12, now remember what Jesus told them. He says, what I want you to do until the Holy Spirit comes, go back to Jerusalem, wait, pray, and then when the Holy Spirit comes, go be my witnesses. Look what they do. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they entered into the city, they were up to the upper, went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. And these all, with one mind, with one spirit, with one purpose, were continually devoting themselves, were being steadfast, persistent in the face of any opposition, internal or external. With one mind, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, one of whom would be James, where we've been walking through for several months now. What do the disciples do? They have this brief moment where they're just... They're just kind of stuck looking and, hey, what are you doing here and what do you see them do? They go and obey. Jesus said, go back to Jerusalem. Jesus said, wait. They wait. They're praying. And and, and the story will go from here. The story will unfold. We'll find in in, in chapter 2 that as they are praying, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, that, that the Holy Spirit, these first believers whose entrance into salvation was slightly different than ours because we're living in the days after the ascension of Christ. They were there at the ascension of Christ. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, fills them, seals them. What do they do? They go out there in Acts chapter two, they go up to the Temple Mount on Pentecost and they began to preach. And the Holy Spirit moves in a miraculous way as people of other languages hear them preaching in their their own native languages. Three thousand respond to the gospel that day. A church is formed there in Jerusalem, and the story moves forward. Some of those will go back to regions that they they had left to come in for the festival. Others will stay there in Jerusalem. We find by Acts chapter 7 that the church is now large enough, that influential enough, that a structured persecution of Christians takes place there in Jerusalem. We'll see Stephen martyred by men who lay their coats at the feet of a man named Saul. And those believers, many of them in Jerusalem, they're going to scatter throughout Judea and Samaria. Those are the believers we've been looking at the the book of James being written to. They're going to scatter out. We're going to see in Acts chapter 8 a great awakening taking place in the Samaritans. Those people that if you were a Jew, nothing, God would never move amongst them. And there is revival, there is an awakening, a, a movement of salvation. Among the Samaritans, people are getting saved left and right. And in the middle of that, one of the evangelists who's, who's seeing the highlight of anybody's ministry life, the Holy Spirit says, Hey, leave this and go south to the middle of nowhere. And he does it, he obeys. And he goes south to the middle of nowhere, and on a tiny little country road, he sees a carriage. And the Spirit says, Go up to that carriage. And he walks up to that carriage and he finds an official from from Ethiopia in the carriage who had been in town for a religious festival and he's reading the book of Isaiah. He's reading prophecy of Christ and he says, "I'm I'm reading this, but I don't know what it means. Can you tell me what it means? Oh, absolutely, Philip can. And he there explains and the Ethiopian eunuch gets saved, baptized and proceeds to go back to Ethiopia, where we know from history the church sprung out. We find in Acts chapter 9, the most unlikely of individuals, Saul the persecutor, comes to faith in Christ and becomes Paul the apostle. In Acts chapter 10, we see the Gentiles begin to respond. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are set apart by the Holy Spirit in the church of Antioch in in that greater region. They're, They're set apart to go to go be traveling missionaries, church planners, and we watch as the rest of the book of Acts, the gospel will spread through what was then Asia Minor, today, Turkey. It'll move over into Greece. It'll ultimately get to Rome. By the end of the book, the gospel begins to spread like wildfire. We know that in the life of the apostles, the church is found. The church moves into Syria in the east. We know that it's strong in northern Africa. The gospel will make it as far north as Ukraine and modern-day Ukraine and Russia, as far west as Spain, as far east as India and Tibet, all in the lifetime of the 12 apostles. And over the next 300 years, there will be cycles of of official imperial persecution that will come and go, and the church will rather them all, and it will continue to thrive and grow even greater in the midst of that persecution, for the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But the story doesn't end there. We know over the next 1700 years from then until now that you've got various groups like the Anabaptists who would proclaim, yes, you are absolutely a sinner in need of desperate grace. And praise God, Jesus offers that grace. And there is joy to be found in his salvation. And they will go out and they will see people come to faith though they would endure brutal and quick martyrdom. We see groups like the Moravians who would raise up in Central Europe and would go all over the globe sharing the gospel. Individuals like William Carey, the father of the modern missions movement who would leave a, a ministry life in England to go to, to a place in India where there was no, where there was language barrier, where there was not any kind of modern convenience, where there was no presence of the gospel and would give his life. We see men and women like Adoniram and Ann Judson who would heed the call and leave America and a life that is here to go to Burma we see women like Amy Carmichael who would leave affluence and wealth and a family in, in England to come down and share the gospel and minister to at-risk and poor women in India. We see God raise up people like Jim Elliott who would give his life, murdered by the Alka Indians, who would later come to faith in Christ, who would say, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain, what he cannot lose. Why, church family? Because this is the story of the mission of God. The book of Acts never comes to a formal conclusion. It starts with saying, hey, first I wrote to you all Jesus began to do. Now I'm writing to you all that Jesus is continuing to do, and there's no conclusion to it because Jesus hadn't stopped. But in that story, we arrive to today, and what is our place in that story? What is our place in this story of the mission of God which has us at its end? A picture in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 of a great multitude that nobody could number of every tongue, of every tribe. Of people and nations, of ethnicities from all over the world, of people who who are saved. The heart of the mission of God is for God so loved the world. And church family, understand today that if you are in Christ, we are called by Christ. We are Christians in this world to be his witnesses. It's a simple point today. We are called to be his witness. Well, what is a witness? Well, a witness is a person who gives a true testimony, an accurate account for what they've seen, for what they've heard, for what they know to be true. Church family, our testimony, our account is that of Christ and his gospel. It's that message of, for God does so, in fact, for God is real. And He does so in fact love this world, which is by nature hostile to Him, that He gave, that He sent His one and only unique Son, the One who was fully God and fully man, to live the life we failed, to die the death we deserve, to rise from the grave and offer a salvation that is joyful and beyond what we could ever dream or imagine. This is the message of the Gospel. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, be reconciled and restored to God. And we are called, church family, to testify, to give witness to the person and work of Jesus. And you know what this means, church family? It means our job is not to save people. That's God's job. Our job is to witness, it's to proclaim. It's to preach the message, it's to tell of the wonderful uh, majesty and grace and might of of our Lord and Savior to save, and this is an incredible pressure reliever because there is a misnomer at times, both, both congregationally as a church and even personally, that if, if I don't share the gospel just right, then, then they're not going to get saved. The, the inverse being, if I just said all the words, if I just had the perfect gospel presentation, it's like the perfect marketing pitch, then you'll get saved. And if you don't get saved, well, then I must not know what I'm doing. Listen, church family, The reality is, the sad reality is, the majority of people who've heard the gospel in the world have rejected it. Our job is not to come up with the perfect foolproof pitch that will save anybody. If you find that, it probably means you've left the actual gospel. Our job is not to save someone. Our job is to tell people how they can find salvation from the one who can save them. Church family, if we're going to be as witnesses, it's going to demand time. You're going to have to take time to share with someone. You're going to have to take time to to walk through questions with someone. It's going to demand effort and intentionality. It's going to demand we actually take intentional time to pray about it, intentional time to seek out people, intentional time to talk. It's going to take effort. It's going to be hard at times. It's going to be messy at times. It's going to demand sacrifice at times. It's going to demand surrender to the movement of the Holy Spirit and through our lives. And it may demand, it will absolutely demand our life, and it may even require our death. But we are called to be His witnesses. Let me remind you, you you can't witness to to who and what you don't know. Here in this place today, you're watching online, and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't possess the ability to give witness to Christ because you can't witness about one you don't know. So instead, hear our witness today, that in this world that is filled with self-centeredness that leads to further brokenness and despair, that there is hope. That the longing of relationship with which you know on your darkest day when you still yourself and you feel that longing deep in your spirit, there is an answer to that longing. His name is Jesus, and He wants to save you today. Hear our witness. If you know Christ and understand, church family, we won't be good witnesses for who and what we're unfamiliar. Are we growing in Christ? Also, understand this will be a lousy witness for who and what we are dispassionate about. Are we loving Christ? Perhaps our witness for Christ is weak because we're just not really that amazed by the fact that for God so loved the world, for God so loved us, he gave his only Son. We've left that behind in RAs and GAs and Awanas saying, yep, we know that verse and we've tried to move on to something else. There's no moving on to something else. There's just moving eternally deeper in that reality. Perhaps our dispassion is the reason our witnesses hurt. Church family, we are called to be as witnesses. Where? Where? Both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Well, What is our Jerusalem, church family? Pflugerville. Hutto, the, the larger northeast Austin area, let me just help you understand some realities as a church, as individuals, as a congregation of our witness, our Jerusalem. Flugerville, there's approximately 70,000 people in our city limits. If there's 8,000 believers, now keep in mind, 8,000 believers would mean that there's eight churches in the city of Pflugerville with 1,000 people who know Christ. There's not that, by the way then that means there's 62,000 people lost in our city, which means nine out of every ten people you see in our city do not know Jesus. What about Hutto? That's a little smaller, 31,000, but if there's 4,000 believers, it means 8.7 out of every ten people you meet don't know Christ. What about the Austin metroplex area? By the way, did you know this? Austin's the fourth largest city in the state of Texas. It's the 11th largest in the United States of America and currently the fastest growing. There are almost 2,300,000 people living in the Austin metropolitan area. Now, I just came up with a number. Let's say, let's speculate that there's 250,000 believers in the Austin metropolitan area. And you go, well, that means that there's, that, may mean that there's 250 churches all with 1,000 people every Sunday. By the way, there's not that but I'm trying to be somewhat generous. But let's say there's that many, Then, if you do the math and play that out, then that means if there's 250,000 believers in our metropolitan area, it means 9.8 out of every 10 people you see do not know Christ. There's not even enough believers in our metropolitan area to statistically make up one person in a stat. Our Jerusalem is lost. We have 52,000 students at the University of Texas with almost 5,000 coming from other nations, over 140 countries. UT's ranked in the top 25 universities in the world for math, material science, arts and humanities and geoscience, which is why the nation send their students here. Austin Community College has another 40,000 students. By the way, there are almost 300,000 individuals residing in Austin, 14% of the population who are not American citizens but are from other nations who've come here to work. That means one in seven people you meet working a job is not from America. This is our Jerusalem. That alone tells us the nations are here. God's brought them to our door. What's our Judea and Samaria? Our Judea would be Texas which is the tenth largest economy in the world if it were its own country. It's got eight of the fifteen fastest growing cities in America. Houston and Irving routinely vie for the most ethnically diverse, diverse city populations in America. Seventeen percent of the total population comes from places outside of America. By the way, America, there's 350 million people living in America. And if you do the math and, we, and, and, and you take the, the amount that claim to be Christians, then it means three out of every four people you meet in America don't know Christ. If Texas is our Judea and America is our Samaria, then what about the ends of the earth? Don't know if you saw the other day, church family, but we've officially crossed the eight billion people on earth mark. Eight billion people. Out of that eight billion, only 2.3 claim, and I say this, a form of Christianity. That does not mean they claim to believe that Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection is, is good enough to save you and I from our sin and we need to repent. That just means they claim some form of something broadly that claims to be Christian. That means that there are guaranteed 4.7 billion, sorry, 5.7 billion people who are lost, which means at minimum, Seven out of ten people you meet in this world do not know Christ. There's currently 1.6 billion people who've never heard the gospel a single time. When you roll the stats, because when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, see that word nations in Greek doesn't mean geopolitical nations. It means tongues and tribes, people groups. You may have one nation, but many people groups. Well, there are currently 17,442 people groups in the world. Let me just give you, for the sake of time, a simple number. 10,407 of those people groups have less than two percent of their population that knows Jesus Christ by grace through faith. Less than two percent. Yet today, there are more pathways, to minister from Jerusalem to the ends of the world at our fingertips than ever before. As a nurse, a doctor, a teacher, a business person, you can get into almost any country in this world in places that a formal missionary cannot. To be a blue collar worker can take you. ESL, when I taught in uh, English in, in, in Ukraine uh, 12 years ago, it was funny, one of our conversation questions was, What will the world be like in 20 years? This was the number one answer by far from my students in Ukraine. China will run everything and we'll all speak English. (laughs) Summer 2010, that was, what is the world gonna be like in 2030? China will run everything and we'll all speak English. You can, using English as a second language, go anywhere with social media, Zoom, FaceTime. You don't have to wait for weeks upon weeks to send a letter to a pen pal on the other side of the world. You can pull them up right here and now. And here's the reality of the situation. It is estimated that every day 157,690 people die not knowing Jesus. Every day. And if you sit there, church family, and you go, Holy smokes, Pastor, that was a lot of numbers, and I feel way overwhelmed. Yes. Can you imagine the 11 disciples, Jesus? Hey, the whole world. You guys have never left anything further than than, than a couple miles north of Galilee and a couple miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, You gotta go, you're responsible to take the message to the entire world, and there's 11 of you. But you notice Jesus doesn't just say, you will be my witnesses. He says something prior to that. Look back in verse eight. Before he says, you'll be my witnesses, he says, you will receive power by the Holy Spirit. Church family understand, God does not give us an option to be to be witnesses or not. We are his witnesses. The question is, what kind of witness are we? God does not give us an option to decide we'll go here but not there. It says we're going to be his witnesses in both Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He may use us in different ways in those categories, but we don't get an option. But here's the reality. Far from being overwhelmed, we are able to do the mission. We are able to be his witnesses with confidence because the Holy Spirit, God himself, if we are in Christ, is living within us. We are not sitting here today facing the monumental reality of this task without the ability to do it, far from it, church family, in a world that is so lost, that is dying of lostness literally and spiritually every day. We possess the very power, we possess God Himself to go out and do something. We don't lack anything to provide the witness. Listen to how Scripture speaks of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 16, the Holy Spirit gives wisdom and direction for ministry. Paul, don't go here. Instead, go here. We find in in Acts chapter 4, the Holy Spirit is the one who fills us and gives us the boldness to witness we find in Acts chapter 8, the Holy Spirit puts in our path, quite literally, divine encounters of people who are, who are struggling, who are wrestling, who go, can you help me make sense of this? Yes, I can. I can help you make sense of this broken world. The Holy Spirit convicts. It's not our job to convict. It's our job to proclaim. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. And by the way, you go, this is great, pastor, but I have no clue what to say. Well, that's great. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke Chapter 12, verse 11, writing to His disciples, think about this, these are blue-collar workers who've never stood in front of any kind of massive assembly. They will bring you before the synagogues, the rulers, the authorities. Do not fear or worry what you are to say or what you are to speak, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The Holy Spirit so mighty in our lives and in His grace, He gives us the very words to proclaim for the witness. So, church family, we are without excuse. Far from being overwhelmed, I give you the numbers to say, look, the world to witness is at our fingertips. We are without excuse. There there are people all around. I don't give it to overwhelm. Here's the reality. We are able to do the task, brothers and sisters. If the Holy Spirit of God, in fact, lives within us, Yes, the mission is massive and it's overwhelming by human odds, but we don't go in human power. We go in the power of the Holy Spirit. And given this, then there's two things we got to be aware of. We must not be distracted and we must obey. You see, here in this passage, the disciples are asking, "Well, is now the time you're going to come back?" The disciples are there, standing, looking in. There seems to be this temptation, this pull towards distraction. And church family, we're we're in no ways uh, protected from that. We can be distracted by a misunderstanding of what it's all about. We can give so much attention to when we fall. When will I fall in love? What should I major in? Are we going to afford a vacation this year? When will the good old days come back? Will life ever get back to normal? Will, will, we, can be, we can be asking so many questions of all the wrong things that we miss. The leading and movement of the Holy Spirit. We can be so distracted by trying to understand or being worried by the times and what is or isn't happening when Jesus says about the times, before I return, you will hear of nations going to war and plagues and famines and rumors of war. Do not fear. Before I return, the message of this gospel must get to every tongue and tribe is what he says. And then a few verses later there in Matthew 24, he he tells a parable about the faithful servant. When the master comes back, Will he find his servants distracted by all the wars, plagues, famines, and rumors of wars? Or will he find his servants faithfully going about his mission? So, church family, we must not allow ourselves to fall into distraction because the call to be His witness is not limited to the apostles and the professionals. It is God's mission from Genesis to Revelation, and if we are God's people and we are going to walk and live in line with God's heart, then His mission must be our mission. It must be my mission when I walk out the doors of this place. It must be my mission when I am in, t- in, in my, my time of prayer, Lord open doors, Lord help me see. It must be my mission when yes, I'm going about sending off the 800 email at work today that's driving me crazy but I've got five coworkers sitting all around me who don't know Christ. It must be my mission. It's why James, in the midst of these believers that we've been looking at living in hard circumstances, oh, serious about the gospel transforming every aspect of their life because they are living out the gospel as a witness in a world that is looking to see, is Jesus real or not? And Jesus is still on the move but He's chosen to be on the move through His church and we as the church will be the closest thing this world sees to Jesus until Judgment Day. Will we be His witnesses? Will we be marked like the disciples by a pattern of faithful obedience? What do they do once they they finally get there? They, They return to Jerusalem. They get on their knees and pray they receive the spirit they go out and witness you see this mark and so here's what i simply say church family will we be faithful the call is to reach one who is that one neighbor that one family member that one coworker that one teammate that one classmate that one friend who is that one person god is stirring and placed in your life and on your path who is that one person are we being faithful Will we share faithfully? Will we pray faithfully? By the way, we don't have time today, but there's an unbelievable connection between prayer and evangelism. When God's people get on their knees and pray for God to move in this world, does something in the hearts of God's people. Doors open, the gospel's shared. When you look throughout Acts, you always see the people praying. And then you see the gospel being shared, will we pray faithfully for labors to go out in the harvest? Will we pray faithfully uh, for doors to open and boldness to speak like Paul in, in Colossians 4? Will we share faithfully? Will we pray faithfully? Will we give faithfully? This mission is bigger. Will we give our time? Will we give our resources, our finance? It's bigger than any one of us. That's the reality of Lottie Moon. It's the reality of the convention. Why, why? Someone asked me there, why, why the convention? What's the ultimate purpose? The ultimate purpose is this. We as a church could barely fund one full-time missionary. We as one of 47,000 churches fund 3,500 full-time missionaries who are le- seeing people come to faith in Christ and training locals to become pastors and church planners. And the gospel is moving because what we can do together, it's not on any one of us, it's together. Will we give faithfully? Church family, understand today, the Gospel of Acts starts with all Jesus began to do and teach, but it never has a formal conclusion because it hadn't stopped yet. Jesus is continuing to move, and we are part of His work and His mission as His body. The question will be, will, will the world see us, First Baptist Pflugerville, as a body that leaves the 99 to go after that one, or will they see a body that's distracted by too many other things? Church family, may it be that we are marked by a faithful witness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've laid in front of us. <clears throat> God, and I just hope. Well, God, here's the reality you have laid the nations in front of us. All we got to do is just walk outside. There are people all over our community who do not know You. There's many we'd be shocked who have never actually heard the gospel shared um, ever before, and there's many who've never heard it shared accurately before, truthfully. God, the gospel we preach, yes, there's a heaviness. We are sinners and we are deserving of a punishment, but oh, the joy, Jesus. God, Father, You so loved us. You gave Your only Son, and there is salvation. There is hope. There is reconciliation. There is the ability to have a life that is transformed, that is marked in this world, this heavy, broken, battered, weighty world. There is the ability to have a life that is marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, Holy Spirit, Because there is a life, Jesus, that can be found in knowing you. And, Lord, may we not so quickly lose sight of what our hope is, both in this season and just in this world. But may the heaviness of the world constrain us and maybe push our gaze back to see, Lord, our hope, our joy has never been in the peace and comfort of this life, but it's always been in you. And may you find us faithful, God, to share, to pray, to give, to be your living witness. To be a light that shines from Pecan Street to the farthest corner of this world. And Father, if there is any who is wrestling with whether they know you or not, Holy Spirit, may they listen and respond to your conviction. And Lord, if they're ready, may today be the day of their salvation. That's in your name we pray, Jesus.